1: PI P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
0: Good morning. Well, it's the holiday season and there is much talk about gifts, but there is no gift that is equal to the gift of freedom. Today is the first of a five-part series PIC classified is featuring in partnership with the Northern California Inno- Inno- Innocence Project and today to kick off the series will be Obi Anthony who knows firsthand what it means to be free after spending 17 years in prison paying for a crime committed by somebody else. Obi was convicted in 1995 of a 1994 attempted robbery and the murder of Felipe Gonzalez. His conviction was based solely on the testimony of one witness. That witness operated a nearby house of prostitution. In other words, a pimp. He had a prior manslaughter conviction and he was known to carry and use firearms. There was no physical evidence. I repeat, there was no physical evidence linking Obi to the crime. He was convicted by prosecutorial misconduct, his counsel's ineffective representation, and this sole witness who admitted that he lied when he testified. Obi was released October 2011 from a California sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole and served 17 years of wrongful imprisonment. He always maintained his innocence. He was 19 years old when he was arrested. Before his arrest, Obi worked with firefighters around Camarillo, California, with the California Conservation Corps. And he was raised in South Central Los Angeles and currently lives in Southern California. Good morning, Obi. Good morning. How are you doing, Francis? Good. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. And then joining us is Linda Starr. Linda is a co-founder and director of the Santa Clara University Northern California Innocence Project. We call it NCIP. She received her JD from the University of Southern California Law Center and has over 25 years experience as an attorney both in New York and California. She's clerked for the California Court of Appeal. She's worked as an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. She's worked as a private practitioner at all levels of the state and federal courts on post-conviction matters. And at NCIP, Linda oversees the aspects of investigation and litigation into wrongful conviction in both state and federal courts. She develops also, and you know, she doesn't have any time to do anything else, it doesn't sound like, but she also develops and teaches the Innocence Project and Advanced Innocence Project courses at Santa Clara University School of Law. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Francie. You know, this is, um, I was just saying earlier, I was reading up on your case, Obie, and it, it just, it makes me angry to see what happened to you. But I want you to, I want you to tell, just start at the beginning and tell what happened when you got arrested and take us through um what you' what you remember about it
2: yeah well what I remember about my arrest was it was uh initially it was it was, it was it, I was, it was like totally caught off it was uh, I was called down to the book in front of the county jail and was told that I was being charged with a murder with three attempted murders and three attempted robberies mm. and uh my first response was do you have the right guy are you sure you have the right booking number and you know it was like are you sure you got the right individual? And uh, he was like, "Yeah." He repeated my name and my my booking number, and I said, uh "And told me, you know, whatever issues that I have, I can, you know, basically voice those concerns to my public defender or my my attorney when I receive one." Mm-hmm. And um, so I was shocked when I, I was shocked when I was charged with this case, knowing nothing about it. And so uh, my mind began to scramble about, you know, what are they talking about? When are they talking about? And things like that.
0: So. OB they ask you to come down to the to the jail, is that what you're saying? Or to the police station?
2: No, I was um at the time at the time that I was arrested for this of this crime here that I was convicted of, I was currently incarcerated for another charge. I see. And and so uh when I was when I was, when I was charged with this, they called me to the booking front. And in the I booking see. Front, they end up, uh, you know, <laughs> going through the motions and I was totally surprised and shocked. Initially when they called me down to the booking front, I thought it would have to do with something about traffic tickets or something like that that I would have to clear up because normally when you're in there before you are released, they make sure, you know, they, they go through the, through the motions to make sure that you don't have no warrants and things of that nature before they release you. And I'm thinking in my mind that that's what the situation was.
3: I want to point out too that Obi was incarcerated, was being held on another charge. Those charges were dismissed because they were yes. false. So he yes. didn't have another case actually. That was just why he was being held at that time. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. And how long were you in were you in when this happened? How long were you there? Um, let me see, I got a
2: originally original, I got a car, I got locked up uh, April twentieth, nineteen ninety four. I was charged with this case here, I want to say June or July of the same year.
0: Hmm.
2: Wow. Well, that's
0: <laughs> okay. So you're blown away. You get assigned a public defender. Is that what happens first?
2: Yes, Um what happens first was they send me this young lady, um and I'm you know, distraught. I'm like, look man, I, I need a lawyer, right? Because she was an alternate public defender. And I was saying mama, how are you gonna, they gonna send me an alternate public defender when I have a murder case. I need a lawyer. And uh, so it was, I was upset with her. So I'd end up eventually sending me a young man named Patrick Thompson. It will end up being my public defender?
0: Okay, so let me back up a second. Uh, an alternate, I just want to clear up alternate public defender. Yeah. And this is in LA, correct? Right. An alternate public defender's office is the same as the public defender's office, but they handle cases where there may be a conflict on the case. Is that, is that right, Linda? That's correct.
3: They're they're yeah. again essentially an alternate to the def- public defender's office. Um, they were a fairly new office at that time. They had just branched out from the Public Defender's Office, and generally it's when there's a conflict because either one of the witnesses or the victim or somebody has previously been represented by the Public Defender's Office.
0: Okay. So they have to have a different attorney. Okay. So then it got sent back to the Public Defender's Office, and you got this Patrick, what yes. was his last name? Thompson. Thompson, Thompson. okay. Thompson. Okay, and is that the person that handled the case through conviction? Yes. So this is the guy that didn't have the investigation done right?
2: Yeah, exactly. This is a young man who, uh, you know, from the beginning had my attention. You know, I thought that he had my best interest at heart, that in fact that the things that I was bringing to his attention in regards to, you know, things, people he should talk to, things he should look at, um, investigations he should look into, um, initially I had thought he was taking care of these things because that was the kind of presentation that he was giving me But ultimately come to find out, you know, that wasn't the case at all He was you know, he hadn't followed up with his investigator after giving him the information to go take care of certain things He had a certain uh disposition in regards to myself For as you know what he thought for as uh My guilt or innocence was concerned mm-hmm.
0: So, You know
2: it was a whole host of
0: things and what? What was it that he should have investigated or should have followed up on that he didn't do? He
2: what he should have what he should have followed up on and should have investigated was he should have investigated Jones more heavily yeah. first and also on top of that on top of that he should have also went back and went over and talked to some of the witnesses that was there at the building. He had information within his holdings that indicated it was other individuals that was on the on the scene that he could have possibly had interviewed. But it was his it was his position that he you know he didn't he didn't want to knock on the door that the police have already knocked on, figuring that it, it, it wouldn't serve him no justice to do so.
0: Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that sounds this crazy. This is actually a remarkably rich case for witnesses.
3: There are yeah. a couple of reasons for that. The crime happened outside of a very busy and prosperous house of prostitution. So there were lots of witnesses around. Now, granted, they might not have all been willing to talk, but many of them, when we approached them, were quite willing to talk. The other interesting thing about it was that this was such a well-run operation that there were video cameras at doors and various places around the building that Mm. captured various people's images who were clearly witnesses to some part of the interactions that led to the shooting. Those were witnesses that should have been spoken with because they clearly had information and at one point you can see one of the witnesses passing off a gun. So yeah. these, these were, this wasn't like, well how are we going to find them? Who are we going to know? They were mm-hmm. there. They were easily findable. In fact, they were captured on videotape.
0: So now, let me, it was a very when-
3: witness rich environment.
0: Okay, and this Jones that, that you mentioned, Obi, that is John Jones, who was the guy that ran the uh, prostitution house.
2: Right, absolutely. it yeah. was two Jones that was involved in this case. You had Arthur Jones, was a security guard, was uh, a, prosper, uh, a prospective witness to something, and then uh, you had John Jones. Okay. <laughs> right.
0: Okay, and... Linda, was the video provided to the public defender, or did was that one of the things the prosecutor withheld?
3: No, the video was provided to him. And, and I think that the court, when it reviewed our case, did a very fine job of explaining how interwoven all of our uh, claims about the problems with this case really were, because it is true mm-hmm. that the defense attorney provided ineffective assistance of counsel by failing to follow up on many of the things he should have followed up on. And as, as we noted and as our expert witness testified, he had the right ideas. He just didn't do the follow-through to allow him to use any of the information in court, which is you might as well not have the ideas if you don't do the work that allows you to use them. But the but the bottom line was he, he was not provided with much evidence that would have directly impeached the only witness that was able to implicate Obi. And that's John Jones. Yeah. And he was not provided with the, with the evidence that would clearly demonstrate that John Jones got a deal in exchange, a good deal, a terrific deal yeah. in exchange for his testimony <laughs> against Obie. And that was information yeah. that was included in the D- district attorney's file on John Jones' case. And there was information that the detective investigating the case did not turn over regarding her investigation of the case. And you know he didn't do what he could have done with the information that he did have but he didn't have some very powerful information that was never turned over to him by the prosecution and the mm-hmm. prosecution failed to correct John Jones's testimony when he lied on the stand they just let him knowing, lie and uh, let that information sit could, there and knowing he was lying and knowing he well, or knowing or should have knowing as the court said knowing or right. should have knowing that he was lying, because it was in their own files on his case that he was getting a deal for this testimony.
0: And was, would, if you know, was he ever asked that, was either the investigator, the police officer, or anybody connected with the prosecution ever asked that question on the stand? Um, or, was, or was that witness asked that the information? Witness asked the witness was asked and denied. He denied oh, that he denied? was getting yeah. any deal whatsoever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And the information about um, Jones, was could that been available otherwise? Did he have a criminal history or anything like that? He did have a yeah, criminal he history. He was quite a busy fellow.
3: Um, and he had quite an impressive yeah. criminal history, both here and in other states. He had a prior yeah. uh, manslaughter case that was a horrible case that happened in the same building uh, with a weapon, um, they actually mm-hmm. executed a search warrant on his house shortly after this case, which he interpreted to mean cooperate with us, or we're going to take down your building and your operation that we've allowed to exist for many years uninterrupted. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So he, you know, he definitely got the message. And when they searched that building, they found a weapon, which then they never compared to the bullets that were used to shoot Felipe Gonzalez. Um, and yeah. there was always a belief, even by the detectives, that there was a third shooter in the case, not just the robbers, but another person who shot from the building um, that was actually wow. the person that killed Felipe Gonzalez. And everyone believed that that person was John Jones,
0: uh, including the police. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Obi and Linda, this is a good ta- time to take a break. We'll be right back after a quick commercial break. Okay.
1: Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at nciss.org or call 1-800-445. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. (laughs) VoiceAmerica.com
0: Obi Anthony and attorney Linda Starr from the Northern California Innocence Project are here today to discuss OB's wrongful conviction. And Linda, you were just saying that um, that there was evidence or at least speculation that the person that testified against Obi John Jones, the pimp that ran the prostitution house there at the scene, may have been the shooter. That's correct. And that's You
3: know, at at one point during the investigation, I mean, the entire investigation began with John Jones when he leaned out a window and said something as stupid as, they went that (laughs) away to the detectives. It's almost like from the (laughs) movies. And from then on, he was their their guy. That was it. Um, They actually, at one point, went up on the roof with John Jones and pocketed some bullet casings that were never entered into evidence that was never shared with the defense that information did not come out until a reporter shared that information because that reporter was shadowing the detectives at the time for um, purposes of writing an article about their work and a, uh, subsequently a book so that mm-hmm. information only got it never was put in a police report it was never compared to any of the bullets from the scene um Peculiar way of police of conducting police investigation,
0: to say yeah. the least. And but were they even put in evidence? No, were they di- no, no they were never no. retrieved. They were never found. Nothing. No, wow.
2: There was oh. there were interviews that were held that was never that was never turned over, written. There was verbal interviews that the reporter took note of, but the detectives didn't.
3: There were times when witnesses were shown six packs, and then they failed to identify somebody. Oh. That's information that the defense is absolutely entitled to. The police officers did not record that anywhere and did not turn those
0: reports over. Linda, would you tell our listeners what a six pack is?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. A six pack is uh, a method, uh, a questionable at this point in time method of obtaining and attempting to obtain an identification of uh, a perpetrator. It is where six photographs uh, that supposedly uh, look like a description that was given to the police are put uh, on a piece of paper or in a folder together beside one another, three in the top and three in the bottom, and then that six-pack, as it's called, is shown to the witness, and the witness looks at those pictures, and if they see somebody who uh, is the person that they recognize as somebody participating in a crime, they're supposed to tell the police officers that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not any more considered the the best way of obtaining yeah. an accurate identification or a reliable <clears throat> identification, but it is the way that identifications are typically done by police departments.
0: And and still today?
3: Still today, and, mostly that's yeah. how it's done. Yeah.
0: yeah, and the recommended way is one photo at a time.
3: Yes, yeah, so that the witness is actually comparing the picture to, to the person that they... Uh, are recalling as having seen as opposed to comparing them all to one another and finding the one that looks most like the person. So it's just a a better way of obtaining a reliable identification.
0: And I know you guys at the Northern California Innocence Project are working on legislation in that regard. Is that correct? We've worked on lots of policy
3: efforts to try and convince law enforcement to Adapt their best practices, which don't include the six packs, and in fact, we've had some success with. There have been some law enforcement offices and uh, district attorneys' offices that have, in fact, begun adopting those best practices. The truth is, it's just a matter of time. It will have to be done. Um, yeah. And so it's it change is slow, <laughs> yeah. but it is happening. It is happening.
0: Okay. And so when. When we talk about prosecutorial misconduct in this case, it's it's pervasive. It started out with law enforcement, yeah, with the officers, you know, really hiding and destroying evidence for lack of a better way of putting it, and uh, manipulating the system and working with a guy that was already breaking the law <laughs> who's running you know who's operating as a pimp and they know he is clearly it's a busy house they had to know did they it, did it you, was you ever, quite an elaborate operation i mean i don't i don't i could not in my own mind have
3: imagined the complexity with which this operation was conducted. There were tote boards which ranked the girls according to how much money they brought in, and they got weekly prizes. There was an in-house store to provide customers with everything that they might need from toothbrush, uh, food, to drugs and alcohol, and uh movies, so that they would be happy uh, as they were spending their money in this house. Um, yes. It was quite, quite an elaborate... There were, you know, walkie-talkies and, like I said, video cameras. Uh, everybody knew. It was not a small building. It was a large building that occupied that entire corner.
0: Um, was it ever shown that these police officers frequented that house?
3: Yes. Uh,
0: well, it was never shown that. Uh, John Jones did claim that. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Okay. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. It does make sense mm-hmm. for sure. Okay, so Obi, so you're you're sitting in jail. You you're you're meeting with your attorney fairly yeah. frequently or did he come around? I mean, how often did you see him? I uh, he, he
2: came very frequently. And and that, that's another reason why it came such a surprise to me because that he didn't do the investigative work that he should have done. But uh yeah, he was there. Pretty, He came when I called him when I, and I said, look, I found, I came across some information with, inside a murder book, inside the murder book, which is, uh, the murder book, which is just contained all of the information of the investigation that the, um, the homicide detectives, uh, that they conducted. Okay. And then, um, then, um, so, uh, he'll come down and talk with me about the information that I found. So I was thinking that he was taking that information and doing something with it, but.
0: So you felt comfortable with him? You felt like he was doing his job?
2: Yeah,
0: I did. And you trusted him? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And how about your investigator? Did the investigator come and meet with you as well and fill you in on what what was going on with the investigation?
2: Um, I believe I met Mr. Collins maybe once. Maybe once or twice, but I did think I did. If I remember correctly, I did meet him once for sure.
0: And you were telling me before we went on the show today that you think he's now, uh, Mr. Collins, is now deceased. Yes, I believe Mr. Collins is passed on. Okay, all right. Okay, so...
3: This case really was all about investigation. It really needed to be done in this case, and it was there to be done. It wasn't going to be an impossible task because, like I said, there was a lot going on that could have been investigated. And one of the ways we know this is because we had a phenomenal investigator help us with our investigation on the case. And this was years after the incident.
0: And who who was that, Linda? It
3: was a woman named Deborah Crawford Uh who works in Southern California. She was what an investigator should be. She was thorough and thoughtful and able to follow up and had an idea would follow up on leads and wherever that lead took her to the next lead, um, and again, this is twenty years after the incident, and she was doing it.
2: Yeah, right. and this you know? is the reason why I mentioned earlier about you know that hey, listen, that you have investigators that's there that does that do what they're supposed to do. They do what they signed on to do, which is go out there and go you know and be impartial in their investigation, but at the same time doing an effective job at what they do. And, uh, exactly. And but then when you have those situations where it's the opposite of that, you know, again, like I said before, right, the, the individuals that are that are basically kind of, you know, get thrown to the to the wayside are those in, innocent individuals because they don't get the proper work that they should get from the beginning, which starts off with the investigation.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I guess I feel, Ovi, that I, in, you know, on behalf of criminal defense investigators that we all work closely with i Mm -hmm. i have i have to apologize i wish it had been different for you and what what did you feel like when you're sitting in trial and hearing this evidence and hearing nothing that refutes it
2: and it was you know it's it's crazy going through that type of experience where you you're sitting there in this individual you know that this person is just lying through their teeth and that the story is just made up and you just kind of you hoping that during the course of their conversation that one liar trip up another liar and, and it expose itself, but um, you know that that didn't happen. And uh even though know, you know it was instances where you know it was a possible where it, the lie was shown like that, but it's it's very difficult to sit there and watch an individual sit there and lie on you, and there's nothing that you could do yeah. to disprove that lie. You know, no matter what you say. Or individuals that you kind of that you call in and say, look, that that's just not the case. I mean, it's it's, it's very it's a, it's a hardening situation.
0: And did you testify, Obie? Yes, I did. You did testify. Yes. And how did that go?
2: <laughs> it was. I think I'll defer to Linda.
0: <laughs> it did not okay. go well. I mean, this is just another place.
3: Way. This is a place right. where, um, I I think that the defense attorney was not thoughtful in how to go about presenting. His client's testimony. He called his client to testify before some other witnesses, and he hadn't prepped either his client or his other witnesses. So mm. their, their, their testimony did not sound as plausible as the truth actually was regarding the alibi. Um, as you know, it's very easy to confuse dates and times and places, and that's the kind of information you want to be sure that you yeah. have verified and gone over with the witnesses beforehand, and that just wasn't done, and they were obviously confused. Um, and people you know, don't he, testify. Let, let's, I mean, <laughs> the, the bottom line was, Obi Anthony, at every moment given the opportunity and not given the opportunity, told everybody, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And it's not like he could say, I can tell you who did, because he had no idea who had done it. He wasn't there. So, Mm. you know, there's only so much you can do with, I didn't do this. I wasn't there, and I didn't do it. And that's what he said. And, you know, he presented an alibi. Um, The alibi was true. But the alibi is with family members, because who are you with most of the time? Right. So if it's with family and friends, it's easily discounted by a prosecution who says, of course, they're going to lie for him. And you can tell they're lying because they got dates and times confused. It's it's a very difficult alibi to establish. Um, And it was done, and it was true, but it just wasn't convincing to a jury who had what they believed was an eyewitness telling them that they saw him doing this. Incident, right. and they did not have the information that allowed them to understand how unreliable that eyewitness was.
0: Well, and we know that eyewitness testimony anyway is very exactly. unreliable, but it's the most unfortunately the most powerful. Um, right. So, did Obi? Did you know John Jones? I mean, how did he? How did he come to pick you?
2: I don't. You know, that's another question that remains. No, I didn't first. know I didn't know John Jones. And how did he came to, he how he came to pick me, I come to find out was because again, the detective in the case pointed my, pointed my photo out to him and said this is the individual right here she wanted him to identify. Outside of that there, Jones, Jones didn't know me from left to right. He didn't, I didn't know him, never seen him, none of the above. And um I, it, you know, he freaking one lifestyle and I did another. Mm-hmm. and it wasn't no situation for in other words where him and I in other words to have to have that type of crossing for me to know him or him for him to know me. And so uh you know that's why I was like man this dude don't even know me. The only way that he can possibly identify said it was me is because the police told him to identify me and that's exactly what it turned out to be.
0: Just incredible. You know, I have a, a quote from you Linda that was in uh, um I believe it the Santa Clara Law news uh newsletter which says The police purposely ignored and hid evidence that did not support their theory and manipulated the witnesses to create evidence to support their misguided tunnel vision. The prosecution falsely denied that they granted their star witness a deal for his cooperation and failed to correct his lies at trial. And Mr. Anthony's own attorney failed to investigate the case. For their failures, Mr. Anthony has spent 17 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And the actual murder murderer has remained free. This cannot be considered justice. It's a great quote, Linda. Oh, uh, thanks.
3: It's uh, yeah, true. How, it is true. true. It's absolutely true. You know, this th- they had in their head that Obi was the perpetrator for whatever reason, and that was it. They then went about crafting a case to create Obi as the perpetrator. And you know what's really interesting? And the court even commented on this in his decision is that after we raise these allegations and we bring forward this new evidence that shows all of this to be true, they put the same cop on to do the investigation, Detective Wynn, to do the, quote, (laughs) reinvestigation of this case. Really? She secretly calls uh, John Jones (laughs) in and tapes him, videotapes him being questioned by her. And during, it's almost painful to watch the questioning of him. He doesn't have any idea he's being (laughs) videotaped. And she goes about questioning him in such a way that it is obvious all she's really interested in doing is securing something from him that says what he said before was true. She has no interest whatsoever in actually exploring with him anything that, that, and of the new information that's been brought forward.
1: Which I is exactly
3: ta- what she did the first time around. If he said something that didn't correspond with what her view was, she just ignored it and pretended like he didn't say it. And yeah. what was interesting to us is she wrote a report about her, in- her re-investigation with John Jones that said one thing. We then got the videotape of her conducting that investigation, which is entirely different than what <laughs> is reflected yeah. in that report. Yeah. And okay. that to us was a demonstration of exactly what she did at trial.
0: Wrote I wrote the I want to,
3: come to, to say we, exactly what it was you wanted it to say.
0: All right, we need to take a break, Linda. I want to, but I want to come back to this because this is really important. Obney, Obie Anthony, a recent exoneree, and Linda Starr from the Northern California Innocence Project have been discussing Obi's frightful wrongful conviction. We will be right back.
1: on P.I.'s Declassified irb search is where quality matters irb provides access to the best online data for locating people businesses and assets irb data gives you strength in numbers allowing you to access billions of records even with partial information on your subject irb search instantly returns current and past addresses phone numbers and more call irb search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up mention pi's declassified and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at one 472 5788 That's one 472 5788 You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Well, we are back, and Linda Star. Um, legal director of the Northern California Innocence Project was just talking about the reinvestigation of when um, there was a claim of innocence on Obie's part where she brought the witness who lied on the stand and everybody knew that he lied on the stand. (laughs) Uh, Not everybody, not the the defense, but the prosecution (laughs) knew he lied on the stand. I think Uh, most importantly the jury didn't know. Yeah.
3: Everybody in the courtroom but the jury knew.
0: Okay. All right. So um, I think this is really important um, that that sometimes law enforcement goes to such great lengths to support their case, even though it's wrong. And I and I I see this all the time. Where um, I mean, you know, I'm not saying there aren't there are some very good police officers out there, some very good dedicated detectives out there, but there are some, unfortunately, who Want to win at all costs, want to have a, a stripe on their sleeve at all costs, and some prosecutors the same way, even though there's some very good prosecutors out there. But, um, but to manipulate the information, uh, as much as she did is really egregious.
3: It's deeply troubling, and I'm going to just quote to you a line from the court's order. The court notes the leading manner in which the detective questioned Jones about his identification of petitioner. It appears to reflect a desire to ensure that he was not going to change his position, as -hmm. opposed to objectively revisiting the evidence from the case. Mm -hmm. It is troubling that given the issues raised in this petition, Detective Wynn conducted this Mm re-interview. So it it, it was
0: really disturbing to see, to, to see that. That continuing. Yeah, and at what point did John Jones admit that he lied? At various points. I mean, that's part yeah. of the problem with John Jones'
3: testimony. He, he started sort of backtracking out of some of his testimony um, right away. I mean, the prosecution yeah. should have known from the beginning that this was not a person upon whom to base their case. Mm-hmm. He he explained at one point that he never really even saw the perpetrators, that he was doing this based on information that was provided to him by others who had mm-hmm. seen it. Um, he testified in proceedings regarding Obi's co-defendant that he had lied, that he never really saw it. So there were various points at which he explained, in fact, what was sort of what was going on in his mind.
2: Yeah, And then he ultimately admitted in court during the course of my hearing where he made a statement saying this, that, uh, you know, while he was incarcerated for his small stay in, in the institutions, that, uh, he's seen thousands of Anthonys and Coles. That it could have been anybody at that table and he would have pointed the finger at them.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and I think and that so, was uh, the truth, actually. I think that was the one yeah. time John Jones, or yeah. maybe one of the one times he was telling the truth, yeah. is that, look, yeah. I looked out and I saw there could have been a lot of OB Anthonys. I don't know who it was. <laughs> Any one of those yeah. hundreds of people I saw could have been
0: that person. Mm. Oh, wow. Wow. So, Obi, you mentioned the book, uh, The Killing Season. Uh huh. And that was a book that was written before you were, while you were still in prison, right?
2: Um, yeah. Matter of fact, it was written right before I think I had hit the prison and then it ultimately was released while I was in prison.
0: <clears throat> okay. And, and information from this book actually helped you out. Yeah. your exoneration
2: yeah it did well when i when i first you know it was, when i first got my hands on the book and i was, i began to read through it it was what jump, what jumped out to me immediately was the conversations that was transpiring between detective Wynn and arthur jones and pete Razinskis and how that information was in nothing that i had and so uh and as a matter of fact, it was, it, it, at this point, I, I was still doing, I was heavily involved in trying to prove my innocence even er, early on when I was in there. And so it was like I was still trying to make contacts with individuals to see what they had found out. And it was some information that I had came across that I had then called my, my old public defender, Mr. Thompson, Thomason. and it was telling him, look, this is the information that I came across. And there was some information that was also that, uh, that was contained in that book. That was there, that was, uh, and it was very, it was insightful because it was like, man, this is, it was new. And it was like, man, well, where was it at at the time? And it was all kind of questions that came up when I ran after reading that book.
0: Well, good for the guy that wrote the book. I've, I just pulled it up on the, on the, uh, internet. It's for people that are, might be interested in reading this. It's called The Killing Season, A Summer Inside an LPD Homicide Investigation by Miles Corwin. Um sounds like it was a very important book. And did Linda I I have a different view of the book. Oh, do you? Okay. (laughs) It was it was a rather
3: sort of sensationalized account. I think what was most remarkable to me was that it was permitted to happen and that his notes were never turned over. So here's what happened. Miles Corwin somehow got permission to follow around these detectives while they did their investigation in a variety of cases. You can see him with photographs of him at the scene, like on the cover of the book and in the book. So he's clearly a part of the investigation. As a defense attorney, I want, I believe I am entitled to his notes. They are conducted and prepared during the course of this investigation. They were never disclosed. They were never turned over. He claimed to remember nothing about anything and to have destroyed the notes. So inform- and it's clear his notes had more information than the police reports because that information ends up in bits and pieces in the book. Yeah, so yeah that's that, amazing. I don't, I don't know how it can be that police officers can protect turning over Brady information by allowing it to be done by a reporter instead of them. Once he becomes part of the investigation, as he clearly was, that that to me means his information should be available to the defense.
0: Well, um, I, yeah, I agree. And, and Linda, when you say Brady information, that's based on a case, Brady versus Maryland.
3: Yes. And know, information just, that uh, could be helpful to the defense that, that the prosecution has, they are required by our Constitution to share that information. Uh, correctly so. I mean, it's pretty obvious that that, that should happen.
0: Okay. And so... Um, how did the Innocence Project, and I guess it was Loyola Law School that also got involved in yeah, your so case, Obie? Yeah, so this was a, a large team that worked on this case, and the way
3: it happened was yeah. Reggie Cole's case, Obie's co-defendant, came to the attention of the Southern California Innocence Project, the California Western School of Law Innocence Project, and they began representing him. And his has a more contorted... Um, Procedural history that I won't go into, but in the course of that, um, contacted us and said, "Would you uh, take a look at Obi Anthony's case because we're representing a co-defendant?" And anytime we have co-defendants like that, we share, um, we, we split up the defendant so as to avoid any potential conflicts of interest. Sure. So sure. we then began working on Obie's case, and when I say we, I mean we at the Northern California Innocence Project, and that includes our attorney, Paige Canib, who really led the efforts in this case. She was just a phenomenal uh, bulldog mm. of an investigator and an attorney working on Obie's yeah. case. So she, she began working on the case with me. Um, and then we were contacted by Loyola Law School, uh, Professor Lori Levinson there, who was in the process of starting a new project called the Loyola Project for the Innocent. And because they were in Southern California, uh, and because I know and respect Professor Levinson, um, we decided we would collaborate with them. That way we had boots on the ground in Los Angeles to do a lot of this investigation that was going to need to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, in fact, how we ended up getting... Deborah Crawford involved in the case as well, um, and it was a terrific collaboration, and, yeah. it, took a, and it took a team to really yeah. do the investigation and the work that was needed to undo Obi's case. Yeah.
0: From the time you started working on it, Linda, to the time he was exonerated, how how much time was that?
2: How
3: much time was that, Obi?
2: Two No, it was 2000, 2000 beginning in 2008, um, February 2008. And the case culminated uh, September 30th was the judgment the day. The judge renders the decision September 30th, 2011. So it was like three years. Three in years,
3: and you know we had ph- phenomenal <laughs> participation by others in the community. We had uh, a witness who's a uh, you know a very well known criminal defense attorney, Marcia Morrissey, agree oh, yeah. to review the records in the case and give us our give us her opinion as to whether Patrick Thomason had performed um, effectively and she testified at the trial about her review and what he had done properly and what he had failed to do and how colossal that failure was in the terms of, of, of the facts of this case
0: oh. for sure Okay. We. I'm sorry we need to take another break I hate to break this up but we'll be right back stay tuned for more from O.B. Anthony and Linda Starr
1: on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified dot com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: My guest, Obie Anthony, a recent exoneree after serving seventeen years in prison, and Northern California Innocence Project legal director, were just discussing Obie's. Um, I guess for lack of anything better to say, t- troubling journey um, to get him here today where he is exonerated and a free man. And uh, so I want to go just briefly to, in our last segment here, uh, to Linda and have her tell you how, you, how the Innocence Project works and what the process is
3: okay so we are a law school clinical program which means we have law students that take us as a class we teach them a lot about wrongful convictions and we also assign them to work on actual cases like obi's case and over the course of three years obi had a whole series of law students both from our uh, project and the loyola project that were working on his case um and they do everything from soup to nuts on on the case. They do legal research. They do factual research. They go and interview witnesses. Um, we had one student create a model of the building so that we could mm-hmm. use it as a demonstrative in our uh-huh. hearing. We yeah. had students go and take measurements and speak with forensic experts, talk to the actual witnesses. Um, like John Jones, um, go to the prison and interview any witnesses that are incarcerated, and work with us on writing the documents that need to be written to bring the case into court. So the way a, a way an inmate gets our help is they write to us and explain okay. <clears throat> what it is that happened in their case and why they're innocent, and then we begin an investigation. Sometimes attorneys contact us, us with cases, too. But mostly it's inmates writing to us about their case.
0: And sometimes even investigators. And actually. sometimes, <laughs>
3: lots of times, investigators. And when yeah. investigators or attorneys contact us about a troubling case, we take it quite seriously because they see lots of cases. Yeah. Uh, and if they're troubled, then there's reason to be troubled.
0: Yeah. And so... Uh, so you get a letter from somebody who's incarcerated that says that they are absolutely innocent. What do you do then? Uh, well, we start
3: looking to see what the state views the facts to be. And our best way of looking at that is to look at the appellate documents, the documents on the direct appeal, which would be a brief, a court of appeal opinion. And that at least gives us a summary of what the state views the case to be, because that's what's represented in those documents. And we look at whatever evidence or uh, information that the inmate has given us to see how does it, how is that reflected or not reflected in what we see with the state. And then we mm-hmm. start doing investigation, uh, talking to witnesses, reading other documents, looking at police reports, talking to the former attorneys to gather as much information as we can about the case to see if there is a way that we may be able to demonstrate that somebody's innocent. Now, and are, everyone are that these... writes to us is not innocent. Right. So we know that. We don't yeah. assume they are. We don't assume they aren't. We try mm-hmm. to take a very objective approach and just do an objective investigation to see whether or not we can show, uh, find evidence that then does fact show that they're innocent.
0: You must get thousands of letters.
3: We get between 800 and 1,000 requests for assistance a year. Uh, and we read every one of them. Usually wow. within a month, we have read their initial request and figured out whether from that request, this is a case we can move on for more investigation or a case that we're not going to be able to do anything with right from there. And then the triage begins. We be, begin gathering information about a case. And, you know, many of, the, m- many of the cases give us situations where there's just nothing else to be done. I don't know if they're guilty and I don't know if they're innocent, but there isn't anywhere for us to go. Yeah. And those are hard. Oftentimes, or not often, but sometimes we reinvestigate a case and we find out, in fact, the client, the evidence shows that he is, is guilty. And yeah. then we're done. We've done what we were, uh, trying to do, which is see if there's any evidence that would allow us to show he's innocent. And if there is not, we close the case.
0: Hmm.
3: We close, Half of our cases from the initial letter, um, and after that we then begin the triage to lead us to see if there's any way for us to to move forward. I
0: I like your use of the word triage. That is a perfect description of uh, what happens. Yes, that is that's really good. I like that. So, um, so do you then go? At what point do you go meet with the? client or the I guess it's a client
3: it, well they, they become a client at a certain point um, we don't go meet with them on every case because we simply couldn't we're a very small office with a very small staff and even, even with students the, the inmates are housed all over the state Right. And, and so getting there the expense of getting there and the time of getting there can be phenomenal so we're, we're, we're not able to meet with everybody that writes to us we go meet with the client when it's clear to us that we need to meet with the client in order either to figure out what to do, to get information from them, to understand something that they're saying that we're not understanding, and then we do go meet with the clients. Mm-hmm.
0: And and once you are actually, you, you've figured out that this is a case that you can work on, how long would an average case take? Years. They take years.
3: years. I mean, OB yeah. actually moved quickly. Three years is a short amount of time. We have some cases we've been working on for ten years. Um, and cases where we're truly convinced of the client's innocence. So mm-hmm. they you know they can take a very long time.
0: And it's so frustrating that when you are convinced of the client's innocence and you can't pull those last details together. It, it is extre- so extremely, frustrating. Inno- I mean, extremely frustrating. Yeah. So uh, how is NCIP funded, Linda? Well, that's a good question. Um, we are funded uh, in some small way by the law school
3: to the extent the law school is able to fund us. Uh, the rest we have to raise. So we have... Fundraising events and fundraising dinners and fundraising direct mail efforts, uh, and it's a constant effort to keep us sufficiently funded. We operate really cheaply. Um, when yeah. we go and do an investigation, we stay uh, in friends' homes, we sleep on couches, we sh- share space together, we carpool um, you know, we take the rubber bands off the newspapers to reuse, so we are yeah, we are definitely a, a lean and mean operation, but yeah. this kind of work yeah. is expensive. Obi was housed in Calpatria, which is down yeah. by the border, the Mexican oh, yeah. border. Yeah. we 're yeah. in Northern California. to visit yeah. him required us to fly to San Diego, rent a car, drive yeah. to the prison, stay overnight in some local inexpensive yeah. hotel. It, yeah. it was, you know, and we, we needed to visit him. He had information that we needed. Yeah. Um, and it's that way for many of our cases. Investigation is expensive. If we have to consult with experts, it's expensive. Uh, we're cheap.
1: Yeah. When we
3: do a case, it's, you know,
0: a dollar to the hundreds if a law <laughs> firm were to do the case. Yeah. yeah. What, if, yeah. what if somebody wants to contribute? Um, They can send us
3: a check at the Northern (laughs) California Innocence Project
0: at Santa Clara University School of
3: Law. Okay. Um, The address, I believe, you can post on your website, and also people can go to our website, Northern California Innocence Project. Google it, and we turn up. They Mm. have to be sure that they're hitting Northern California Innocence Project because uh, all Mm -hmm. innocence projects are separately funded, and ours is the Northern California Innocence Project. Um, we have a big fundraising event coming up in the spring and March that people can attend. Always a wonderful event. Um, well that, let me just
0: give the website, Linda. It's sure. www.law.la.w.s like Sam, C like Charles, U, edu front slash NCIP. And you know what? Unfortunately, we are out of time. I would love to talk to you both so much longer, but we—they're uh, going to cut us off here. <laughs> they're going to pull us off. But uh, let me just mention that next week's show, will as part of the exoneration series, series, will be Gloria Killian's story with NCIP lawyer Amy Kennedy. So thank you both, Linda and Ob. And again, folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening.
3: Thanks, Francie. Thank you.
0: Thanks.
1: You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.